Well, something tragic took place this week. Winter arrived here in Minnesota. I'm wearing a sweater again, unfortunately, and the other day I looked out our back porch where my wife had dozens of beautiful flowers planted and pots full of lovely green flowers budding with beautiful, you know, uh, plants budding with beautiful flowers, and uh, they had all turned to this in the matter of an evening, one night. Believe it or not, just five days ago, this was a thriving plant with beautiful, I mean, dozens of beautiful red flowers blooming all over it. What happened? What happened? What happened is the environment changed. That plant had been an environment where it was able to thrive. It was out in the warmth. It was in the sunlight. It was getting water. It had everything it needed in order to bloom and grow and be a vibrant, thriving plant. But literally, in the matter of one day, everything changed. And that plant went from thriving to dying. I was thinking about that this week as I was preparing for our passage this morning because this plant really is a pretty powerful metaphor for what can happen to our lives spiritually if we fail to keep ourselves in an environment conducive to spiritual growth, an environment conducive to experiencing an experience of thriving in our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, when we take ourselves out of those positive environments, we can quickly go from thriving to dying spiritually. Many of you have probably experienced that in your own life or seen that reality happen to others where they take themselves out of an environment conducive to spiritual growth, spiritual vitality, and pretty soon their faith goes from something that was vibrant and alive to, to quickly shriveling up and, and looking almost dead. You know, this is the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. If you remember, the the letter to the Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to this new church. It was a church that he had never met personally. One of his disciples had planted this church. But Paul had received reports. Paul, who was in prison in Rome at the time, had received reports that this church that was about five years old, a church that was vibrant, full of life, growing and thriving, was at risk of beginning to wither spiritually. And if you remember from our previous weeks together, that risk came in the form of false teachers who had come to Colossae telling the Christians in Colossae that Jesus and the gospel that they had received wasn't sufficient, that there was more they needed. There were, there were secrets and rituals, and, and there was all of this knowledge that Paul and Epaphras, the man who planted the church, didn't originally tell them. There was more that they needed. And the Colossian Christians were being seduced away from the pure, true gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that if they should be seduced by these false teachers, they could quickly go from a place of thriving to dying. And so Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. He wrote to to warn them to make sure that they remained rooted and grounded in an environment that would keep them thriving spiritually, growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. 
This morning, as we continue on in our journey in the book of Colossians, we turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. And this section of the letter is really a, a pivot point in the letter where Paul is going to transition from what we've been looking at in the previous few weeks together, these deep, rich theological truths that the Colossian believers had originally been grounded in, the, the truth of the real Jesus, the, the truth of the real gospel, the truth of real discipleship in Christ. Paul's been dealing with these hugely powerful, rich, deep theological themes, and now he's going to shift the direction of the letter to talk about the practical implications of these truths for the Colossian Christians' lives. Practical implications that have just as much power for our lives today if we're willing to look at how those rich truths we've already studied apply to our lives so that we can maintain a vibrant, growing, thriving kind of faith. Let's take a look at our passage together this morning, Colossians 2, 6 through 15. And when we come, come out from our reading, I want to share with you this morning three principles that we see here in Paul's passage for how we can experience a faith that thrives. Let's take a look at our passage this morning, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Some scholars have suggested that this section of the letter really is a summary of the entire letter itself. Here Paul reminds these Colossian Christians of, of the rich theological truths that he's already covered and, and he begins to point them ahead towards the practical application of what these truths mean for our lives. And as I mentioned a moment ago, here in these verses, Paul shares with us three principles that can help us to experience a faith that thrives. Friends, would you like that this morning? Is that your desire for your faith? A thriving, vibrant, life-giving faith? That's the kind of faith God wants for us. 
And Paul shares with us here three principles for how we can have that kind of faith. The first thing that we discover here in our opening verses, verses 6 through 7, Paul tells us that a faith that thrives is all about Jesus. A faith that thrives is all about Jesus. And here in verses 6 through 7, Paul gives us six admonitions. Six admonitions for experiencing a faith that thrives. He says, number one, if you want a faith that thrives, it's all about Jesus, you need, first and foremost, to hold fast to the truth about Jesus. You need to hold to the truth about Jesus. In other words, you need to remember who it is that you received. Look at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now that word received there, as you received in the Greek, that's one word. It's an interesting word. It's it's paralambano. I kind of like that word, right? Paralambano. And paralambano, as you received, it means to receive a teaching from a trusted, authoritative source. In other words, Paul is telling these Colossian believers that you have received the real deal here. This isn't fake news that you heard. When Epaphras came and he shared the good news of the gospel and he told you the truth about who Jesus was, you received the legitimate, original, one-of-a-kind, true gospel. Epaphras received it from me, Paul says, and I received it directly from Jesus Christ. Friends, understand, you have the real thing. So all these teachers that were coming to Colossae, these these Gnostic false heresies that they were bringing, telling the Colossians they didn't have the true gospel, they didn't have the right stuff, they needed more than just Jesus and and the message of the gospel. Paul is saying to them here, hold fast to what you received because what you received is the truth. It's legit. It comes straight from the source. They had received the authoritative teaching about Christ Jesus, the Lord. Now, friends, each of these names and titles that Paul shares here is tremendously important. When Paul reminds them that they had received Christ Jesus, the Lord, he is speaking to them about the definitive truth of the message of the gospel. They had received true Christianity. When Paul tells them that you received Christ, he's reminding them the word Christ, friends, is a significant word. It means the anointed one, the Messiah. And Christ, the Christ that they received, is the one who had been prophesied for thousands of years in Old Testament prophecy. Over 200 prophecies in the Old Testament where God had told his people and promised the world that the anointed one was coming. The Messiah was coming. A Savior was coming who would bring about a great reversal from this fallen sinful reality that the world has found itself trapped in. Paul says, you've received Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Paul then says, you received Christ Jesus. Friends, the name Jesus here that Paul reaffirms for them is profoundly important because here he's reminding them that Jesus was a real person. 
This was a real human being, a real human being who was fully man, but fully God at the same time, who was a real person who lived and breathed and walked in a real place, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, ministered throughout the region of Galilee, was crucified in Jerusalem, was raised from the dead on the third day. This was a real person in history that they had given been given testimony of. Paul says you've received Christ Jesus, the anointed one, this real person, this real individual who lived and died and rose again. The name Jesus itself was profoundly important. The word Jesus in Greek is actually the, the translation from the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. And the word Yeshua, the name Yeshua means the Lord saves. And so Jesus' name, friends, was no random arbitrary name. God told Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because the Lord saves. And it's only in the name of Jesus that salvation is available to each and every one of us. As the Apostle Peter said in Acts 4.12, there is no other name given under heaven whereby we might be saved other than the name of Jesus. There's only one Savior, friends. There's only one source of salvation. That is Jesus. So Paul says you've received Christ Jesus, but then thirdly, he reminds them you've received Christ Jesus the Lord. If you have an NIV, the NIV translates that Christ Jesus as Lord. Friends, that third title is profoundly, significantly, tremendously important. When, when Paul reminds them to hold fast to the truth that they had received, he's reminding them that you have received the anointed one, the person of Jesus Christ, the one who is Lord over all. He is sovereign. As we saw in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, in him all the fullness of deity dwells. He was before all things. He created all things. And in him all things hold together. He is supreme. He is sovereign. And as Lord, he has the rightful authority over all, including our lives. Jesus demands to sit on the throne of our hearts because he's sovereign. He's Lord. And so all of these truths that, that the Colossian believers had received about Jesus were, were profoundly important. And Paul starts out by reminding them, you need to hold fast to these truths. And friends, these are the same truths that Paul expects us to hold fast to as well. If you want to experience a, a vibrant, thriving faith as a follower of Jesus, you need to hold fast to the reality of Christ Jesus, the Lord. But there's the challenge, right? You see, a lot of people are willing to intellectually embrace Christ. They're willing to believe that there was an anointed one prophesied and that these Old Testament prophecies point to Christ. There's a lot of people who are fine accepting that. And there's a lot of people who want and desire the person of Jesus. You know, what a great teacher. He bring, brought so many good truths to us. And, 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 and he's our savior. He's the one who died on the cross for my sins. And, and so there are a lot of people who are willing to even accept Jesus, the savior. But when it comes to accepting the Lord, that's where so many stumble. 
because Jesus wants to sit on the throne of our hearts. He wants to be Lord over every area of our life. And yet, so often, we like to relegate Jesus to lower levels and keep ourselves on the throne of our hearts. Yet, Jesus, you can kind of tag along, but I'm sitting on the throne. Or, or Jesus, you can have the throne over here, this part of my life, but don't ask me to give up the throne over on this part of my life. Paul says, no, that's not how it works. When you accepted the truth of the gospel, the truth that you're called to hold fast to here, friends, Paul says the truth is that Christ Jesus is the Lord. This is essential Christianity. As the great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, he says, it is interesting to notice that the apostles preached the lordship of Christ. The word Savior occurs only twice in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. On the other hand, it's amazing to notice the title Lord is mentioned 92 times. Lord Jesus, 13 times. And the Lord Jesus Christ, six times in the same book. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Friends, if we're going to have a faith that thrives, it begins by accepting Jesus in totality. The Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord over all areas of our lives. Paul says to keep it all about Jesus, you need to hold fast to the truth about Jesus. The, the, the second thing he shares with us here in these opening verses, to, to keep it all about Jesus, we need to walk in Jesus, he says. He says we need to, to walk in him. In the scriptures, whenever you see the word walk, that, that's an idiom for how you live your day-to-day -day lives. When the Bible talks about your walk, that's what it means. It just means how you live your daily life. And so here, Paul is reminding the Colossian believers, he's reminding us that we are called to walk in him, in Jesus Christ. The idea Paul has in mind here is a relationship with Jesus that is progressing it's moving forward. It's going somewhere. And the reason why Paul stresses our ongoing walk with Jesus is because he knows that when we stall, we're prone to fall. Is that not true, friends? Have you ever experienced that in your own life? I know I have. When I'm not walking consistently with the Lord, faithfully with the Lord, when I start to get you know, distracted by other things in the world things in my life and I take my eyes off Jesus and I'm not walking close to him and my faith stalls pretty soon, that's when I'm susceptible. That's when I become susceptible to temptation. That's when I become susceptible from going from a place of thriving to beginning to wither on the vine spiritually. So Paul tells us we need to keep walking, we need to keep progressing, we need to keep moving forward in our relationship with Jesus. The third thing he tells us here is we need to root our lives in Jesus. Root your life in Jesus. Here he's probably thinking back to Psalm chapter 1. 
The, the very first psalm where King David writes, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in, in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Friends, the Bible talks about the idea of us rooting our lives in God and in his truth. Here, Paul says we need to be rooted in Jesus Christ. When a tree is rooted in good soil, that tree will grow and thrive. When that tree's roots grow and extend, that tree is strong and has stability. That's what Paul desires for us as believers, that we would root our lives in Jesus and experience the life and stability that comes from that rooting. Paul then goes on, he says, build yourself up in Jesus, being built up in him. Building yourselves up here, Paul is shifting to a construction metaphor. It's a metaphor that speaks to both our personal and our corporate growth as followers of Jesus. When Paul speaks about being built up, he probably has the image of the temple in mind. And if you remember, friends, as God's people, we are now God's temple. We are now God's dwelling place. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to stay grounded in our faith. We need to be rooted in a firm foundation, not only personally, but collectively, because in doing that, it provides the basis for us to be built up strong in our faith. And as we grow individually and corporately as followers of Jesus, like the temple of old, we become a visible testimony to the world of the living presence of God. Friends, did you know that? When the world looks at us, God's people, as the spiritual temple, it has the opportunity to see God in their presence. Look what 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 tells us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. God is spirit. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John's saying, look, if the world can't see God, God is spirit. But when you, his people, as his spiritual temple, the representation of God in this world, when you love one another, when you love like Jesus called us to love, the world actually gets a glimpse of the nature and character of our God in us. Amen. Friends, that's powerful. Fifthly, Paul says we need to be established in Jesus. If we're going to keep it all about Jesus, we need to be established in Jesus. The word, the word established there in the Greek means to be settled securely. Up at our family's cabin, the lake we're on, uh, it, there's, a, there's an old rowboat on the other side of our lake that, that sunk. I don't know how, I mean, maybe... 50, 100 years ago. It's this super old wooden rowboat. 
and it's sunk into the lake, and it's been sitting there for, for at least, uh, we've been up there for three decades, so it's been there for at least 30 years, sunk into the bottom of this lake. When I was younger, my brother and I, we used to go over there, we used to snorkel around this old rowboat. It's in, it's in like 10 feet of water, and we'd go down, you know, we'd dive down, and we'd try to pull it out, but that rowboat was so settled into the lake that it had literally become part of the lake. I mean, I mean you could probably get it out with a forklift, but there's no moving that thing. It's settled. It's been established. It's become part of the lake. That's what Paul's talking about here when he talks about being established in Jesus. He wants us to be so close to Jesus, so connected to Jesus, so established in Jesus that that we actually become one with him because we're so close to him. That's what this idea of established means. Now, Now lastly, notice what Paul says our heart's attitude should be as we increasingly make Jesus the focal point, the foundation, the centerpiece of our lives. What's our heart's attitude? Paul says thanksgiving. Paul says give thanks in Jesus. The the words he uses here are abounding in thanksgiving. What does it mean to be abounding in thanksgiving? Well, let me show you a little illustration here. I was at a party recently, and uh, at this party... They, uh, they made root beer floats for everybody. And I was thinking to myself, man, this is a great illustration of what it means to be abounding. What is abounding? Well, friends, when you make yourself a root beer float, what happens? That foam mixed with the ice cream pretty soon doesn't take much for it to overflow. That's the idea Paul has in mind here. When Paul talks about being abounding in thanksgiving, he's talking about a life that is so filled with Jesus that it begins to abound, it begins to overflow. And and Paul and God wants that for all of us in all areas of our lives. He wants you to be abounding in thanksgiving in in your marriage. He wants you to be abounding in thanksgiving in your work. He wants you to be abounding, overflowing in thanksgiving in your relationship with him. That's what our walk with Jesus produces, a life abounding in thanksgiving. Now, here's the reality, friends. A lot of people, they pour Jesus into their lives, and and, I mean, that's, that's not abounding, is it? Right? I mean, there's a big difference here between these two cups. What's the difference between this cup and this cup? This cup needs more Jesus, am I right? It needs more Jesus. So here's the key, friends. If you're here this morning and you find yourself being a person who's struggling with thanksgiving, right? You're just complaining all the time. You're grumbling all the time. You know, I'm not happy with my life. I'm not happy with my marriage. I'm not happy with the way my kids are turning out. I'm not happy with my job, right? There's all kinds of reasons we can complain, but if you want to be a person whose life is overflowing with thanksgiving, just add more Jesus. And as you add more Jesus, pretty soon you will experience this reality that Paul talks about, a life overflowing, a life abounding with thanksgiving. Now, who wants a root beer float this morning? <laughs> Come on. I see a couple kids up here. You want a root beer float? Come on. Here you go. Yeah, there we go. We got a brave, brave young lady. Come on up. Let's go. One more. All right, you can share with your brother. All right. <laughs> here you go. 
Enjoy that, all right? And I hope you abound with thanksgiving. <laughs> all right, that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a walk with the Lord, rooted in him, growing in him, being built up in him, being established in him to the point where you experience this abounding, overflowing thanksgiving in your life. That's a faith that thrives. The second principle that we see in our passage this morning, Paul says a faith that thrives stays focused on Jesus. Okay, we we need to keep our focus on Jesus. Look at verses 8 through 10. This is so important. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits. Those are demonic forces in this world and not according to Christ. Paul says, don't be taken captive. Don't be taken captive by philosophy that's, that's based on human wisdom. Now understand this morning, Paul is not saying that all philosophy is bad. Okay, if you're a Christian and you're into philosophy, I was a philosophy major in college. I love philosophy. What is philosophy? Philosophy is just the study of wisdom. Filio, love, and, 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 and uh, Sophia, wisdom, the love of wisdom. That's what philosophy is. And understand, in this world, there is good philosophy and there is bad philosophy. Good philosophy is the truth that is rooted in God's perfect nature and character. Good philosophy is revealed truth from God, special revelation given to us in the person of Jesus Christ, special revelation given in his scriptures, and also his general revelation in creation. But it's truth that's rooted in God, our creator, in his perfect nature and character. That's good philosophy, But there's also bad philosophy in this world. And Paul tells us that the bad philosophy that we need to be careful of, that we don't get taken captive by, that word in the Greek, taken captive, means to be enslaved, to be dragged away. Don't get taken captive by the false philosophies in this world. False philosophy, as Paul describes it, empty deceit. It's lies with no substance, and it's rooted, Paul says, in human tradition and the elemental spirits of this world. In other words, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1, the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. That's where false philosophy comes from, friends. It comes from human tradition. It's simply made up, empty deceit, no substance to it, or it's ultimately grounded in the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. Paul says, be careful that you don't get taken captive. And friends, our world today is full of all kinds of false philosophy. I I shared with you a couple weeks ago, I was speaking down in Newham on Sunday evening on today's New Age spirituality. One of the most prominent false philosophies that many people are getting caught up in today, the, the New Age movement. I call it a not-so-new-age movement because when you understand what the new-age movement really is, the new-age movement is really a combination of three of the greatest lies Satan has ever pawned off on this world. Western secular humanism, Eastern Hindu mysticism, and the whole realm of the occult. And Satan combines all of these things into what is today our new age spirituality. I'm going to have to come and share more about this with you sometime, maybe on a Sunday evening. But, but all of these things come together in the new age movement. And the new age movement says men and women have evolved physically. And now the next step in our evolution is to evolve spiritually to recognize our own inherent divinity. 
that we are all gods. And there are literally thousands of religious movements promoting this idea today. One example I shared with my friends down in New Ulm was a New Age psychic channeler named Jay-Z Knight, based in Elam, Washington. For the last 30 years, Jay-Z Knight claims to channel a 35,000-year-old Lemurian warrior who fought against the Atlanteans, a man by the name of Ramtha, who became an ascended spiritual master. She channels this individual, and he supposedly provides people with divine truth, divine truth to help them experience their own inherent divinity. You go to her website. This is just one of literally thousands of examples I could share with you about today's New Age spirituality. Look at what her website says. There is so much more to you than meets the eye. There are great tools you can use to better navigate your life. Are you ready to remember who you really are and why you are really here? Truth does not come from words written in a book. Truth comes when you apply the words in your life to produce a wonder, a profound result. At Ramtha School of Enlightenment, you will learn grand knowledge and experience it so that the truth is awakened in you. The most marvelous knowledge, the greatest teaching of all is behold God. Where have I heard that before? Friends, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree, any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Friends, today's New Age spirituality, one of the many false philosophies leading people away, taking people captive. These are lies, empty deceits, as Paul calls them, rooted in the oldest lie in the book. The oldest lie in the book. You can become God yourself. This is why Paul writes to the Colossians, warning them, don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit that's rooted in human tradition and the doctrines of demons not in God's revealed truth. As Paul says here in verse 8, the fundamental flaw of all false philosophy is the distortion and denial of the foundational truth of the biblical gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Friends, this world is full of false philosophies and empty deceit, and we need to stay focused on Jesus as Paul reminds us in verses 9 and 10 of our passage this morning, we don't need anything more than Jesus because Jesus is wholly sufficient. Look what Paul says in nine, verses 9 and 10. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Friends, you don't need anything more than Jesus. Jesus is God in totality. And if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, Paul says you've been filled with him. 
What more could you ever want? What more could you ever need than to be filled in totality with Jesus? This is why Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Where is abundant life found? It's found in Jesus. It's found in being filled in Jesus. Paul says, lastly this morning, a faith that thrives. A faith that thrives finds its identity in Jesus. Friends, where are you finding your identity this morning? In your job? Your role as a mom? The sports you play? Right? Do you know how you answer that question, where you find your identity? is probably the most significant factor in whether or not you're experiencing a faith that's thriving or dying. Friends, we need to root our identity in Jesus Christ. And here in these final verses in our passage, Paul reveals three powerful truths about who we are in Jesus Christ. Paul says, number one, in Jesus Christ, I am a new creation. Look at verses 11 through 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting out the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul tells us you're a new creation in Jesus. How so? Number one, you have now received a heart that's been made right with God. That, that circumcision talk, friends, if you don't know what circumcision is, Pastor Ken, raise your hand. You can talk to Pastor Ken after, after church this morning. <laughs> but circumcision was just an outward physical sign of God's covenant with his people. It was the outward sign of God's covenant with his people. But we see throughout scripture that God was always more concerned, not with the outward sign, but with what was going on in the heart. And so when Paul talks about us being circumcised with Christ here, he's using circumcision as a metaphor for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross, it wasn't just a piece of flesh that was cut off, it was the whole body of flesh. Our sinful fallen nature, our sinful fallen human body was crucified with Christ on the cross. And so when Paul talks about being circumcised in him, he's talking about trusting in what Jesus did through his death on the cross to produce within us a new heart when we trust in Jesus by faith. Paul then goes on and he talks about we were also buried with him in baptism. And here Paul is talking about the reality that we have been raised into a living hope. Baptism, and, and one of the reasons why we, we practice baptism by immersion is baptism is a visible symbol of dying with Christ. Our old nature is, has been crucified, buried dead with Christ, but we've been raised with him into new life. And Paul says you've been raised now in Christ into a living hope. Paul says, secondly, in Christ, I am debt free. What an incredible promise this is, verses 13 through 14. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. When Jesus died, John 19 tells us his final word was to shout out, Tetelestai! 
It is finished. That word tetelestai means the debt has been paid. Friends, we no longer have a debt against our holy creator God. We no longer owe a debt because Jesus paid that debt. He paid the penalty for our sin. He brought us reconciliation with our creator. We are now debt-free in Jesus. Lastly, Paul says, in Jesus, I am victorious. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He defeated the enemy once and for all. He disarmed the enemy. And he made a public spectacle of them. The idea here is in the ancient Roman Empire, when a conquering general would defeat a city or a king, they would bring them back to Rome in chains, and they would parade them through the whole town. The, the king and all of his army and all of his treasures and all of his family, they would be made a public mockery, a public spectacle. Jesus says this is what he's done to our enemy. Jesus has overcome them. This is why in John 16, Jesus tells us, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, is that good news? We need not fear our spiritual adversary, the devil. We might experience trials and temptations and tribulations, but Jesus is victorious. He has overcome the world. And when we put our hope and trust in Jesus, we can become overcomers as well. Look what 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 says. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. <laughs> Friends, do you want to be an overcomer? Do you want to be victorious? Put your trust in Jesus, the one who disarmed all the rulers and authorities of this fallen, sinful world. When we put our trust in Jesus, we can know that we are a child of God. Our sins are forgiven. Our debts are paid. And we, too, are victorious, overcomers. Is that good news? You want a source to root your identity in? Root your identity in Jesus. And friends, I promise you, if you do these things, you too can experience a living, vibrant, thriving kind of faith. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for these powerful truths that we have looked at here today in the letter to the Colossians. We thank you that the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of your spirit, shared these words, words that have encouraged Christians now for 2,000 years, words that can encourage us even today to know and experience a living, vibrant, thriving kind of faith. Lord, help us to put these principles into practice in our lives. Help us to keep it all about you. Help us to keep our focus on you. Help us to find our identity in you. And in doing that, Lord, may we too know what it is to experience a thriving faith. A faith that boldly shines brightly out in this world. A, a faith that others look at and say, man, I want that for myself. Help us to stick close to you, Jesus. Help us to experience the abundant life that you've promised us. Help us to know the reality of living in this world as overcomers because of what you have done for us through your death and resurrection. We thank you, Jesus, for all of your amazing blessings. We pray this in your great name.
Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from the book of Jude, verses 1 and 2. Now to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And may your faith thrive this week. Amen. God bless you, friends. Hey, friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.